Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Asian. Today, I'm joined by Carol Pak, founder of Maku, which offers a new take on Korea's oldest alcoholic beverage, Makgeolli. Carol started Maku in 2017, and in just a few years, she has helped put Makgeolli back on the radar with the help of a loyal fan base of Makgeolli enthusiasts. Maku is distributed nationwide in supermarkets, alcohol shops, restaurants, and more. Carol is a native New Yorker and holds an MBA from Columbia Business School. Carol, welcome to the pod. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today. Thanks, Diana. So we actually got connected through Jerry, who runs the Dear Asian American podcasts. And it's funny because when I was talking to him, I was telling him about the content series that I was working on, which is all about putting a spotlight on Asian small businesses. And I think this was something that's very close to my heart as someone who is a daughter of small business owners, and also given all the hate that's happening in the world right now with the AAPI community. So... Uh, thank you so much for joining me. And I should preface this by telling you that I'm allergic to alcohol, so I can't drink makgeolli. <laughs> so I've never been able to try your drink. But I did ask around my friends and I was like, guys, what do you think of maku? Like, what's your favorite flavors? So I do have some information to share with you. <laughs> okay. Oh, very curious to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm curious to know, like, how did you get started? And like, what's your origin story? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Queens, New York, and I'm also a daughter of two business owners. My mom is an acupuncturist. She has her own clinic. And my dad has a beauty supply store and has been in that industry for couple of decades now. So growing up, I never had a role model of a doctor or a lawyer. And my parents, yeah, I guess, just like other typical Asian parents pushed me to go that route, because they said that small businesses are so hard. And they brought us to America. So we didn't have to go through the challenges that they did. And so it's fundamental that we go to a good school, have to go to Ivy League, and then, you know, get a white collar job. So that was kind of the plan. Um, I went to UMich. I got a degree in psychology, and the idea was to go to law school. But I wasn't quite sold on it. So immediately after school, I took a few jobs in nonprofit and government, trying to figure out like what sector of law I would be interested in. And I was also shadowing a couple of lawyers from my church at the time um, who were in corporate law. So I kind of felt like, I had a good glimpse into each of those sectors that lawyers typically fall into. All of the lawyers were telling me the same thing, like run, run from this field, especially knowing you, like this just doesn't seem like the right profession for you. What does that mean, knowing you? I don't know. I don't know, to be honest, but I just remember I was like in my early 20s and they just said, I just cannot see you being a lawyer. You're going to be at your desk and you have to just like be reading and studying all the time. And, you know, they're like, well, you should probably go be a politician or something more people facing and a lot more mm -hmm. dynamic in terms of like my day daily activities and why they said that I'm not really sure. But I ended up falling into kind of a tech startup scene because I had gotten an email while I was working at New York City Council talking about entrepreneurship and free classes. And so I actually enrolled in like some startup fast track that was being offered by the city. 
there I met an, a tech entrepreneur from UPenn and he wanted to start some tech company and he needed like a co-founder to handle more operations while he f- focused on the product. And so I ended up leaving my job to start that with him when I was 22. And that was my first foray into like entrepreneurship. And did you know what you wanted to do at that point? No. I feel like if you ask anyone in college about me, like I was always the person who had no idea what I wanted to do every week. Like I wanted to change my career path in terms of like, (laughs) oh, I think I want to be a writer. Oh, I want to be, you know, I had no idea. But I I had a lot of like pressure because I felt like I needed to have it all figured out by the end of college and I didn't. And I was like, really in panic mode. But anyways, I ended up doing that for about a year. And there were a ton of reasons why the startup didn't work out. But as a result of that process, I met another tech founder who was trying to start another company to help female founders. And I guess she saw my enthusiasm and ambition and interest in the space. And she was like, well, I'll pay you a salary. Do you want to come do operations for my company? So then I ended up leaving my company, joining her company. And then I was there for about three years. It was called Plum Alley. It started as an e-commerce site. And then it pivoted to a crowdfunding platform. And then it changed now to an angel syndicate. And I think they're doing pretty well. They focus on Series A health care female-founded companies. It wasn't really a scalable business, and I was kind of like at the prime of my years where I had a bunch of energy and I wasn't sure like how to focus it. And, you know, I could tell by staying at the company, I wouldn't figure out like where I needed to be in life. And so, yeah, the CEO, my boss, she recommended that I go to business school. She was like, she knew I was still trying to go to law school. And she was like, well, I think that you really belong in business school and not in law school. And so um, she had gone to Columbia Business School and all of her network and all of the women entrepreneurs I met as a result of her, you know, she had met all in Columbia. And so I decided that I wanted to go, go to Columbia as well. So I ended up going to Columbia 2016. And then at that point, I just didn't have the money saved up that like all of my peers did right I always had like really really low paying jobs and it was fine for me because I was just trying to dabble in every industry and field and like quickly find out what I was good at or what I wanted to do but then in business school it was like so apparent that I should have saved you know x amount of money by then like everyone had money in a 401k they like were buying houses and I just felt so behind and so at that point I was like well, I'm just going to go find a high paying job and figure it out after. But at this point, I was already very like interested in the startup scene and very used to that kind of working environment. But when push came to shove, I ended up going to ZX Ventures, which is a like an arm of Anheuser-Busch InBev. And the role that they hired me for actually was entrepreneur in residence. And so I felt like I had the best of both worlds, which was um, stability and like, competitive salary coming with like the corporate side of AB InBev, I was able to work like, you know, looking at all the startups and like innovation and creative side of things at the company. And so like a program that they recruit for, for MBA students. Yeah. So it was a brand new program. I think that I was 
Yeah, I think I think we were the first year that mm-hmm. they had tried that. And externally, um, our our titles were global manager explorer. Mm-hmm. So only internally, people knew what we were doing. It was a very like secret division because no one else was supposed to know we were what we were working on. And they only hired like MBAs. So I think like it was a total of five people from different schools. And so I ended up working there. And then they had put me on a project in China. And so I was going back between New York and China. My head was very like in the industry of alcoholic beverage. Like I had to know what the trends are, you know, what the five-year forecast looks like for trends, the markets, you know, where we need to focus on. And then I was, you know, living in China half the time. And so I took a trip to Korea, and then that's when I noticed that Makgeolli was changing in terms of the brands that were coming out, the people that were launching these brands, the consumers that were drinking it, and kind of putting two and two together with like what I knew was happening in the U.S. market in terms of like culture and just like consumer behavior patterns, the demographics, and then on top of that, knowing what was kind of happening with the alcohol industry. I thought like I had enough information to start testing like whether Makgeolli could work in the market or not. And it was like definitely earlier than I had anticipated like leaving the company because like I didn't have enough money saved up. Like I still had my loans, but... You mean leaving AB, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then I, you know, I felt like a business opportunity through like my past experiences. I realized it has to be a combination of like market timing, founder product fit, and having like a network or knowledge of the industry. And I felt like being Korean American, being located in New York, where it's like a prime market to launch new innovative products. And like everyone here is very open minded, and high has like high disposable income. And then like me having some experience in the industry, and knowing that no one else is going to go after Makgeolli. In like in the world at that point, um, I was like, okay, well, let's just try it. And at the very least, I have my MBA to back me up if I like wanted to find another job. So mm-hmm. that was the idea. And then I left in 2000, yeah, summer of 2017 to start the company. See, that's so interesting to me because it sounds like you had a very like logical pattern of decisions that you were making like okay well I'm checking this box and this box and this box and the circumstances fit so this might be a good opportunity and I think in order to mitigate risk that's Mm -hmm. an approach that a lot of people take and then on the opposite end of the spectrum there's people who are just like I need to create this for myself like I see a problem in the market and I and I know the solution Mm because I need to create a solution for myself is Makoli something that you were always passionate about or interested in or was it just like it doesn't matter what the category is it just happens to be that I'm passionate about driving this business and driving this impact um I think it's the latter I actually never drank Makoli before I started Maku it was a discovery of mine when I went to Korea that oh wow this is actually really really good um, but sounds it, like you had a really fun career trip. <laughs> no, it, it was fun. It was it was great. And yeah, like there are parts of my job where it's like really, really fun, right? My market research trip to Korea entails like me going to Korean bars and checking out the, the different brands and meeting with brewers and things like that. And like, I am naturally passionate about that. I think like 
coming from business school, coming from AB, my mind was trained to think that way. And also because I had a failed startup where I was like, Mm -hmm. I can't just like go into something again, thinking this is a good idea. Like that's just not enough. Yeah. Um, And I think like, some people can afford to build products just for themselves. But I was definitely not at a place where I could do that. So like, yeah, it was kind of like everyone thought I was crazy. Like, it's not even that I had no money saved up at like 30. It was that I had business school debt and I was leaving a perfectly fine job to to start this where the risks are like already starting a startup is Mm -hmm. against you, but starting a new category, like who who does that. So yeah, it's incredibly difficult. It's so interesting to hear you say that because I feel like you took the exact opposite approach in life that I did. Like, I'm so risk averse, where I was like, yeah, I just like need to graduate quickly so that I don't have to pay so much money for tuition. And that's why I graduated like college in three years instead of four. It was a very practical decision. And then I was like, yeah, I got to like quickly find a job and get some high paying salary at some prestigious company because, you know, I need to like make it in life or whatever. So I had this like very much a checklist mentality throughout my 20s. And like now looking back on it, uh, because I was able to like switch my careers twice in the last two years, this is when I like had an awakening. I was like, wait, what am I doing with my life? I'm like making lots of money. And that's great. But I don't know what I like to do, or I don't know what is really best for me. And I need to figure out how I want to like make a contribution to society (laughs) for the next like 40 years what is that going to look like whereas I feel like you really took the time to dabble in a lot of different things and give yourself the freedom and the liberty to figure out what it is that really like resonates with you that is actually really hard to find some people live their entire lives not finding that answer Mm -hmm. but I feel like you were able to find it which is so amazing yeah I mean um So I graduated in three years too for college. I think I'm a very practical person, but it was always important to me that I love what I do. I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm spoiled or what, but I just like could never understand why people do something if they don't want to do it. And so I was always looking for that job that I loved. And all of like my years at Plum Alley, I absolutely loved it. At AB, there are aspects I didn't love, but overall, it was, like, such a cool job. Yeah, I don't know. My mentality is, like, I always feel like you can find a balance somewhere. And, yeah, I guess, like, money wasn't my priority because I figured I could make it somehow if I if push comes to shove, like, if I really, really needed to. Um, but I was like, well, I only have my 20s once. Like, I don't want to slave away. And I'd rather get it right the first time. Because I know people yeah. who are doing a lot of career changes and mm-hmm. even a ton of business school friends, like they're now all quitting their jobs and like looking to do a startup. And that's totally fine too. Like at least they have the the cushion to do that. Like I don't, like I need Mako to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're all like engagement managers at McKinsey and they're like, wait a second, what did I do with the last 10 years of my life? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> 
So tell me a little bit about Maku. It sounds like you were you had a lot of good experience in terms of work experience before you started Maku, and you were developing all those skills at AB, and it kind of flourished into this Maku brand. At one point, were you like, "Yes, let's do this. Like, I'm going to kick this off, and this is the vision I have set out for it." During my time at AB, my group did investments, new product launches, and investments, and so. I was able to sit in on a few meetings. I met the founders of these alcohol startup brands, and I also knew of the meetings that I didn't go to, where I knew the founders, and I was like, "Well, you're not a genius, and you don't have any background in product formulation. If you can do this, I, I can do this too." I was also in charge of launching a new product in a new category at AB, and so I knew what the process was like. You do consumer testing, and then you design like a list of attributes of what you want, and then you like start brewing, and then you like hire a design agency, and then you do consumer testing again. And so, like, I had that roadmap of what I was supposed to do. So once I got this idea of could maku work, could makali work in in the U.S. And since I have a non compete at the company, like it's not. Like other entrepreneurs, where you can work on something on on the side, like I right. I had to leave and and start it if I want to start it. It was just a complete gamble. So I just left, and then I felt I followed that road roadmap. I'm pretty convicted that it's gonna work, and if not, I'll just launch a seltzer, a hard seltzer. So that was that was the idea. Hard seltzer would not have been a bad idea either, <laughs> given yeah. the market right now. <laughs> yeah. So the two years, the first two years, it was like super challenging and. There were a few times where I was going to pivot to a hard seltzer, mm-hmm. but then I was like, "Well, do I keep the like? What can I keep? Can I keep the name? Can I keep the trademark? Can I keep the design?" And I was just so in love with the design of our can. I, I would see other startups like doing really well with the seltzer, and then I had to remind myself like, "I'm doing makoli because." I'm Korean American, and like this is my discovery, and it doesn't necessarily translate to like if I want to do a seltzer, like yeah, yeah, the market's big, but you know I was like, oh well, then I'm in a race against time and marketing resources, like with AB and like Coors and Corona, and I just like wasn't confident in that. Whereas I was mm-hmm. like, well, with Makoli, at least it's like maybe it'll never explode. Load, but if I could just make a sustainable business, I I'll be mm-hmm. fine doing that, and mm-hmm. um, I could take my time doing it and like not be running out of fear. And yeah. so that's the reason I decided not to go with seltzer. Um, but yeah, every time like I really hit roadblocks with maku because it's so unknown in the U.S. Yeah, I think it's changing though. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I guess it might be a function of like the, the kind of people I hang out with. But even my non-Asian friends are like, "Yeah, let's get it. Like, let's go to K Town and drink some makoli." They get it, and I think there's just trend of globalization and people wanting to discover other people's cultures and explore that through food and drink. I'm curious to know, like, who do you think is the makoli customer? Like, when you imagine someone drinking your drink, who is that person? That is always our question, right? As a company, I think it's twofold. The first one is the makgeolli drinker in Korea, right? It's a female, younger, doesn't like the taste of alcohol, doesn't like getting drunk, so they want to drink something good. And if they're gonna drink, it's gonna be makgeolli. And in Korea, there's like 
this perception of health and beauty that comes along with makgeolli as well. So it kind of enables that consumer more. And um, yeah, maybe it's changed a little bit in Korea now because makgeolli is on the sweeter side. I'm not sure. But then the second category is like what you said, people wanting to globalize and connect with other cultures and be more sophisticated through like food and food and drink, especially like, you know, our first full year of sales was last year during the pandemic. And, you know, they're obviously being aware of Korea as a country because of like BTS and Korean beauty and whatnot. And so Korea has already branded itself as this like cool, innovative company and Korean food has been trending things to like David Chang and now kimchi and prugogi is everywhere. And so my hypothesis was like the same people that is interested in Korean culture, whether it's because of their like Samsung or LG electronics or Korean dramas or everything I just mentioned before, they would be a lot more open-minded about like a Korean beverage because I feel like the presence that Korean alcohol has is so disproportionate to the power that Korean culture has, you know, like like its influence in America. And so that consumer, though, I'm still trying to pinpoint, like, who is that? Like, how does this person look like? Because it can be so broad. It is, yeah. So I'll tell you about the the consumer that I talked to. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. I Um, love that. I had reached out to my friend Andrew. Um, Andrew is a baker. He got laid off during the pandemic and started his own bakery um, in his kitchen in Queens. Um, So shout out to Andrew if you're listening. I asked him what his favorite maku flavors are and what he thinks about the brand in general. And he was like, yeah, it's really good, really creamy. The mango and the blueberry flavors are his favorite. But he said it's a little expensive compared to other rice liquors. So I'm curious to know what you think about that. And also, like, what are the best sellers right now? Yeah, so we get that comment from everyone that it's a little (laughs) expensive. And ultimately, the goal is to drive the price down. I think obviously there is like economies of scale. But being that we import the product, right, it's really the transportation cost that's like super mm-hmm. expensive. And it's not even the transportation. There's all these delays at port lately in the past year. And so like the fees of holding our container at the port and finding these trucks to deliver, it's like so expensive. And so on top of being an imported product, just like us at such a small scale, launching last year during the pandemic when there's so much delays and like lack of containers, lack of trucks, it just increased our prices so much. And so even now, I feel like we took a hit on our margins because we're thinking about our price to consumer, but we know it's still expensive and like also hard to find. Those are the other, that's the other comment. So our plan obviously is like trying to bring the price down so we could be super accessible because like we are trying to create a new category that's relevant and we want to mitigate the barriers as much mm-hmm. as possible because we're already working with the fact that this is a completely new flavor, hard to pronounce, funny color, you know, whatever else thoughts people might have. In terms of flavor that sells the most, it's still original because I think with the original, you have both the Asian consumer, the older consumer, and then the rest of the general population, whereas the flavors are more accepted by 
first-time makgeolli triers. I always thought the branding was really fun. You know, as someone who can't drink the drink, at least I can appreciate the branding and super modern and clean and fun in a very subdued way, like Mm -hmm. the pastel colors and such. And the person I talked to, you know, he's a Queens native. And there's a lot of us who here are based in New York City and appreciate the brand. And, you know, you mentioned that you're Korean American, you mentioned that you're from Queens. I'm curious to know, like, what your experience was like growing up in New York City, and if that impacted the way you approach things at all. I feel like growing up in New York City, A, I had a ton of friends, right? I'm not sure if this is the same experience from for everyone, but like every day I would just meet another person. And so like, not saying I have a ton of close friends, but I've met so many people along the way growing up in New York City. Like you just all hang out at the park or like I used to just hang out after school in K-Town and just meet, you know, the whole other next school. And so I also went to like so many different, schools around New York City and I think over time I just learned a little bit like how to gauge situations and read people and then also having like a very like wide network and so in the beginning that was very helpful for me to get into a few doors right like it Mm -hmm. doesn't seem like much but it's always the beginning that really makes or breaks the business. And so if I couldn't call upon a favor like oh hey I know that your aunt or like your friend or your brother knows this restaurant owner, do you mind like making an email introduction? Or like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I know that I'm like, if I'm talking to someone and they're like, oh, how's Mako doing? And I'm like, oh my God, I can't find a brewery to help me. They would be like, oh, well, I know this brewery because whatever. And so just a sheer amount of networking that can happen in New York City, I think would be different if I was like in iowa or something Mm -hmm. and then obviously like me having an in to like at least the first like 20 restaurants that i pitched to is is so helpful because like even if they say no they'll give you honest feedback and then you can take that feedback to make um your product or pitch better. I heard something very similar. I'm thinking of two conversations that I had. One with Kim, Kimberly McCora from Filipino bakery Cora. She again, like got laid off during the pandemic, started her own bakery. She says that when she started her business, the immediate people around her, like her family and friends were her biggest loyal advocates and really helped her take it off because For some reason, her donuts went viral from the start and it was overwhelming the amount of volume of orders that she was getting to the point where like they would, you know, put out donuts on Monday morning and then in a minute everything would sell out and it was just like super overwhelming to her. She said, yeah, like my cousin does my social, you know, my boyfriend, he helps me like run the company and does delivery. So everyone around her is helping in some way and I think that's a pattern that I'm seeing with a lot of like small business owners, at least in the beginning when they're starting, like the community and the support that you get around you is very important because it takes a team to succeed. It's really difficult to accomplish something by yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm glad to hear that, you know, you had that benefit of having that community around you as well. 
Yeah, and even everyone on our team, I found through like friends. And so Mm -hmm. I was lucky that I never had to go through the actual hiring process, which can be really gruesome, takes up a lot of time and resources. And I also like trust my team now because it's they're all like soft connections of mine. And so, you know, sometimes I wonder like, oh, the way I'm running this business kind of seems like a small business. Like, should I be treating it as if it's a venture-backed company, which it is, which in that route, like all of my friends, they hired headhunters, recruiters, they got people from the industry. Um, But for us, it's just like a whole team of Korean Americans who don't really have a background in this industry and we're just all figuring it out together. But to me, like, kind of comes back to before, I feel like there's always a way of blending joy and personal satisfaction and, like, being efficient and produce results. And so, yeah, I mean, so far it's been working out and it's just a very, like, Korean mindset, I think, that attributes to how I'm running the business and, like, shaping our team. And, you know, there's a lot of listeners on our podcast who are international, but they tend to work like nine to five jobs. So it's exact job that you were in before slash you're not in anymore. What kind of advice would you give them? What kind of advice would I give an aspiring entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. I think the first one I always say is you need to figure out the financing part of a business, right? You can't expect you to launch a business and the money will come if you don't have like a clear plan for how your business will be sustained for at least like the first year, then you probably shouldn't like start a company because it really doesn't matter how great your product is or how many customers you have or how many POs you have if like you don't have the money to fulfill that. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of not planning for that in advance. And just because like your friends and family tell you they'll give you the money, like that's not actually true. Before I started this, I had so many friends and family say like, oh, I'll fund you, I'll fund you. And then like when you actually need the money, no one funds you. So that's number one. And that's like a clear rule, right? Don't run out of cash. And then the second one, this is just like my personal feeling. I I don't know if it's true for everyone else, but because this is so time consuming 24-7, you literally cannot stop thinking about your business and you can't take a break. Like if you're going to start a business, do it in an industry that you like. Right. Like for me, I have to do market research. I have to go out to bars. I have to formulate at home. At least that part of my job, I don't feel as work. And so like I can make things balanced. But if I was in the industry of like, I don't know, like school supplies or construction, like I absolutely would hate thinking about this 24-7. And so, yeah, I think a lot of founders and CEOs say like if you follow the money, like it may never come. And if you follow the passion, money may come. I don't necessarily believe in the latter either. Like you all obviously have to execute well and and be lucky Mm -hmm. too. But I think you're a lot more likely to have grit and like the perseverance when things are going wrong to not give up and literally finding a way if like it's something you're passionate about. My recipe came from my mom. If my mom didn't create the recipe, we probably would not be talking about mako today. That's awesome that your mom made the recipe, by the way. Yeah. Does, she, does she always remind you of that? <laughs> oh, no. I think she forgets she did that. 
and, and really? like yeah she's like oh i'm just so glad those days are over <laughs> i feel like um she'd be really proud i mean normally asian parents are like so quick to uh how do you say like charang right like, yeah uh, show off what their kids are doing mm -hmm. is your mom like that <laughs> I think that she would be doing it a lot more if I was a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I think it's because of it's this alcohol industry, right? It's still a vice at the end of the day. And so she's a little reserved when it comes to that. Like, Do you see it as a vice? No, I don't see it as a vice. But like, um, even when fundraising, there's a lot of firms that are legally not able to invest in us because they're like, we can't invest in vices. So mm -hmm. definition wise, yeah, we, we are a vice. There's a lot of restrictions mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Anything like alcohol, gambling, things of that nature have a lot of policies and restrictions given like the nature of it. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense. I'm sure people are interested in knowing what's next for you, what's next for the brands. I took a look on the website and it looks like there's some flavors that are in pre-sale. What's next? New flavors. We're launching passion fruit in a few weeks, and then we're working on a new one after that. We're debating if we want to start launching maku in different kinds of packaging other than cans. And then we're also working on a completely new product line, um, which is not makali, but I'll reveal it if it if it works <laughs> out. <laughs> it's, it's in the very early stages, so. Oh, that's so exciting. Mm -hmm. You have so much in the pipeline. You must be so busy. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we're also launching in in Canada. And we're also working on launching direct to consumer. So it is awesome. it is quite a busy time. I don't I mean, I don't know if all of them are going to work out. But we're in the exploration phase for all of that. But this honestly is the most exciting part for me, right? Like not the logistics operations fundraising, keeping it together. But ideation innovation like the dreaming part of things and so this gets me going right i, I need this every once in a while or then i get bored sounds familiar <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i say that because i remember going into my svp's office and being like i would like to get assigned this project i'm a little bit bored right now <laughs> and he'd always be like oh like he's shaking his head like he, he's like oh diana's in my office again that's so funny <laughs> what do you do for work? Right now, I'm a product marketing manager. I work at an advertising tech company called Quancast. Okay. We do audience targeting. And prior to that, I worked at Publicis and Group M for eight years, uh, working in media planning and buying. Mm -hmm. So I would work on, you know, developing marketing strategies for large clients like Marriott or City. Um, yeah, so I did that for quite some time. But, you know, agency, agency life really works you. It's kind of like similar to consulting firms or like law firms where you work on like a client billable hours. Oh. So you want to work, you know, you want to bill a lot of hours. You work a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like trauma bonding that happens among junior oh staff where they're all just like ordering 50 chicken nuggets at night oh after 8 p.m. <laughs> it was a lot of that. But now now I have a much better work-life balance, which I'm grateful for because I don't think I can keep up that that uh working late mm -hmm. for such a long period of time yeah it's gonna yeah. age us so can't do that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if there's some listeners who want to find you where can they find you on the socials so we're on instagram at drink maku 
And we're on TikTok, I believe. TikTok, it's- <laughs> hold please. Now I've got to find. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, it's it's very new. We're still experimenting. Um, it was very strange because our first video went viral. We got over a hundred fifty thousand views in overnight, and then after that, it was just like normal traffic. And we're like, well, what happened? How do we get viral again? But, that algorithm, though. Yeah, nobody knows about <laughs> it. And now, now everyone's talking about Clubhouse, and we're like, well, do we go on Clubhouse? But we're such a slim team that mostly we're just on Instagram. Got it. Got mm-hmm. it. I just followed you guys on Maku, and it looks like you have a lot of fun content. <laughs> I'll have to check it out later. Thank you so much for joining. And you can follow us at Let's Talk Asian on Instagram. Uh, Thank you so much. You too. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Diana. Good luck with school. Keep in touch. Thank you. Okay.